Hello again, everyone. Welcome to episode six of Raw Talk Podcast, the podcast formerly known as Raw Data. This episode was originally recorded on a very hot August day back in 2016, where myself and Jabir paid a visit to St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto to speak with Dr. Andrew Baker, who is the chief of the Department of Critical Care and the medical director of the Trauma Neurosurgery Program at St. Michael's Hospital and a professor in the departments of anesthesia and surgery at the University of Toronto. I remember being super nervous for this episode, mostly because we still hadn't had our recording technique down. We were using these very clunky microphones that we would attach to pens to seem like we were a a semi-legitimate team of student journalists. But honestly, he was a very personable individual and seemed to really get into the program. This episode also features our second Word on the Street segment with Hillary, who talks to students about head injuries. She also speaks with Dr. Michael Hutchison, who is the assistant professor and director of the concussion program at the McIntosh Sport Medicine Clinic at U of T. We had a lot of fun recording this episode. I remember glancing back and forth at my phone, being super nervous that the episode somehow wasn't recording or that my phone was going to crash or that I was going to get a call or something like that. But in the end, it turned out okay. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Here it is in its original form, episode six. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Thanks for tuning into another episode of the Raw Data Podcast, where scientists talk and we listen. To wrap up this month's theme of neurotrauma, episode 6 features the one and only Dr. Andrew Baker. A professor at U of T's Departments of Anesthesia and Surgery, Dr. Baker is the Chief of Critical Care at St. Michael's Hospital, the Medical Director of the Trauma and Neurosurgery Program, as well as a scientist at the Keenan Research Center in the Lee Kashyyyk Knowledge Institute. Here, He takes a multifaceted approach to study traumatic and blast-induced brain injuries, from trying to identify preventative measures to tracking recovery or injury progression. In our conversation, we discuss the concept of specialized intensive care units, the latest on the science of concussion, and where the field of neurotrauma is headed. If you like what you hear in this episode or have any comments on how we can improve, please shoot us an email at rawdataims at gmail.com with the subject heading, Listener Feedback. You can also leave a comment on our website at rawdataims.com. All right, enjoy the show. By the way, just a little side note that I noticed, just, just looking at the building, I mean, the doorknobs and, and the radiator, you forget that this actually was once part of historic Toronto, like old yes. Toronto, yeah. right? And when you look at this, you almost feel like you're in Manhattan or something, yeah. right? Because a lot of that architecture just doesn't exist in the rest of exactly. the city. Exactly. It's fascinating. Eh? Today on the show, we are joined by Dr. Andrew Baker, a champion of all things critical care. Thanks for being here with us. Dr. It's a pleasure. Baker. It's a pleasure. Okay, so your medical specialty is in critical care. Yes. Um, and in, in particular, neurotrauma. But yes. I'd like to take a step backwards and ask you, what is trauma? It's such a broad term. Right. It can mean a lot of things. Right. So how would you define trauma? Right. Well, when I uh, grew up and before I was in medicine, trauma, and trauma to many of us, means something largely psychological. It's like that was traumatic and uh, that was a terrible experience. And that's what trauma meant to all of us and means to many of us. But in a, in a medical context, trauma usually refers to injury that is caused by some physical force as opposed to a disease state that arises biologically. And that might arise from a car accident, a construction worker, anyone falling from a height, anything that involves physical force. And so that's that's how we use the word trauma. 
being the chief of a critical care unit, right. how does care differ for a neurotrauma patient right. coming into a specialized clinic versus a generalized right. clinic? Right. Well, that's a great question. Um, and it's very topical, by the way. And, and people are not only talking about that, but writing and publishing about that question. And I don't think there's a, a single answer because, as with many things, sometimes the question is no for simplification. I think it's fair to say that critical care in general deals with the severe end of many illness processes, whether it's heart or lungs or gastrointestinal and so on and so on. And so critical care is a, is a funny sort of specialty because it's almost about the room and the equipment that we have available to treat all sorts of medical and surgical uh, and other illnesses. And often it gets so severe that you need in, in what we call invasive physiologic support, meaning mechanical ventilation and catheters that go into uh, veins and arteries, giving adrenaline-like drugs to support circulation and other mechanical devices to replace kidney function and so on. So within a general critical care unit, while there's commonality around keeping people alive and resuscitation and so on, we obviously have to, at the same time as keeping people alive, look at the underlying cause that led to those problems. And then ideally, we are doing two things at once, keeping people alive and treating the underlying cause. Uh, and there's other illnesses in a, in a neuro critical care unit, uh, such as uh, subarachnoid hemorrhages and other things that affect um, the brain and spinal cord that are not trauma. And they have um, a common set of uh, principles around um, how we uh, treat critical illness that affects the neurologic system. And so groups of people uh, get interested in that particular subspecialty. And as with anything, the more you do, the better you, you get at it. And the question is, you know, if we put all the patients together and all the people that were interested, would the outcomes be better? And some people say they are. And some people say, well, they may or may not be because, you know, if you're on a ventilator and so on, it's good to bring a broad scope of knowledge about all sorts of illnesses to any person, because even if you have neurotrauma, you may also have problems with your heart and lungs and so on. So it's not obvious. Um, I think what is obvious is that there is a lot to know about neurotrauma and that there are now specific guidelines and ways of monitoring patients that require some experience. And some places in Canada bring a specific sort of neurocritical care team in to see individual patients in general ICUs. So what does a team consist of? A team would consist of, again, uh, intensive care doctors who may have a background in internal medicine, neurology, anesthesia, or even neurosurgery, and nurses who are interested in, in assessing their, the neurologic system, and who would come and see patients and bring that sort of knowledge and experience around, that, uh, around neurotrauma or other neurologic illnesses to that patient care experience. So it's really a matter of how we organize the system, and it really needs to be viewed. I, I, I think the bottom line is that care needs to be viewed from a patient perspective. And for, for too long, healthcare and even universities have been organized around disciplines as opposed to or being organized around problems in the case of universities or in the case of healthcare around patients. And so what we're really trying to do in healthcare now is really look at, uh, analyze problems from a patient perspective and then bring in what we need. And that's the key element.
So how diverse is your patient population? I mean, I'm sure there are commonalities, but yeah. are there differences as well? There must be. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, we're very fortunate at St. Michael's and in downtown Toronto and in Toronto in general to have a very big city uh, with a lot of things going on and a lot of international travel. And so we have... Everything from people who've lived in, in Toronto for a long time, who have uh, important, you know, desk jobs in downtown Toronto, and they have trauma or brain bleeds or brain tumors and so on and come here and have a focused neurologic problem, to people who um, may have various recreational toxicology in their veins and have <laughs> various sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, be underhoused and um, have very various social determinants of health which figure prominently in, in how they do. Oh, and then um, moving on from that, we have people who are traveling here from other countries and we have people with, um, and as you know, people are living longer, but as we live longer, typically people over 50 have you know, one, two, or three chronic diseases that they're managing that, that are, we describe them as comorbidities that mm -hmm. sort of go along and impact on how we treat any of the illnesses that uh, are acute. So the acute on chronic illness and uh, the exacerbation of a, of a chronic illness or a new acute illness on top of uh, a, a number of chronic illnesses. And that's the thing about critical care I was getting at before. It's really, it really, we take all comers with all sorts of problems and it's really fascinating. I, I do think a lot about whether we are patient-centered enough and what are the areas we could do better on. Um, have you identified some of those areas? Well, I think we're continuously doing that. And I think we have a group, for example, of nurses and other disciplines and doctors who are really interested in making sure patient families have access to the patients and to us. So recently, we've we've really uh, changed visiting hours, so it's really now twenty four seven in in the critical care areas. And what difference uh, has that made? Well, that I think reduces the anxiety in the family members to, to sort of think they're not they're, it's, it's, they're not going to be restricted to the access to their family when they are critically ill and and, and you know may not survive, and, and so that's huge. And that's something that should have been done a long time ago. We've got that done. We have access. Um, we're now engaging families in our workgrounds more so that they're there and they're listening to us to discuss what we're discussing about their family member. That reduces anxiety because we find people are more anxious about what they don't know than what they actually are told. And so when they know what's being discussed, even if it's difficult, it's much less anxiety-provoking. As chief, I suppose I'm always concerned about the quality of care and so that I like to follow up on, on all the details. And so if there are infections which are spreading or there are other quality issues around timing of blood test results and so on and so on, you've got to be vigilant and follow up on all of those issues to make sure that quality and patient-centeredness is always on top of your mind. You can never let down your guard in that regard. So we're talking a lot about sort of your, your clinical background, mm -hmm. but you're also an active researcher. That's right. So when did science become a part of your discipline? So um, I think science, we have to remember that science is at the foundation of so much, and it's, and it's at the foundation of all medical disciplines. I think in medicine in general, uh, we have moved over the last uh, 40 years from 
passing along observed experiences to future generations of physicians to really raising the bar and saying, wait a second now, we may have been tricked into thinking those observations really led us to certain ways of doing things. There might have Let's, been one really bright physician who just took a lot of great notes. Right. Through some good pictures. Right. And, and there were, there were, uh, but there were lots of ways of doing things that really now benefit from our knowledge of how to ask better questions and how to demand high quality evidence. Because it's easy to be tricked. Even in the best design studies now, we still have difficulty in knowing how to interpret and apply the results. So that is what is at the center of, is, was called evidence-based medicine. I think maybe the better term is evidence-informed medicine, mm -hmm. where we don't have the right evidence on any single occasion, but we have maybe a, circling around that relevant evidence that we have to deploy. Maybe the way I was oriented was that because that's what medicine is, to participate in medicine for me meant to participate in the science. And so after I finished my residency, I, as you know, went to the University of California, San Diego, to do two years of laboratory-based research in neuroscience because uh, that was the area that fascinated me most. What was your project focused around? So I think in anesthesia, which is my base specialty, and critical care, which is my subspecialty, I think, as I mentioned to you, our core task is to keep people alive while we sort out other things. In the case of anesthesia, is to keep people alive and physiologically stable while they have surgery. In the ICU, is to keep people alive and physiologically stable while we sort out the underlying illness. And so keeping people alive and physiologically stable, the most dynamic organ is the brain. So if you look at the time constant for change, it's in milliseconds in the brain. And so that's obviously the most dynamic organ. And uh, getting oxygen to the brain and understanding how that works is, is the fundamental. Anyway, what I looked at was global cerebral ischemia. And at that stage, at the late 80s, the hypothesis around excitotoxicity and ischemia or anoxia leading to the over-release of neuro the neurotransmitter glutamate and then the impact of glutamate on the NMDA receptors resulting in sodium and calcium uh, movement in the cell in excess quantities and the consequences of that was really big at that stage and so that's what I was looking at. And so how has that hypothesis evolved and continued to evolve? Well, I think that... Um, you know, in the case of uh, ischemia and hypoxia, I think people have, have looked at whether alterations and, uh, and targeting the NMDA receptor would be productive in terms of stroke. In my case, when I came back to St. Michael's Hospital, I, I was aware that we had a number of patients where we were draining spinal fluid in order to reduce the pressure inside the head after trauma, a very common procedure. And of course, we produce 500 cc's of spinal fluid a day. And when we drained it, of course, it was just discarded. And so I thought, well, it would be natural to take that spinal fluid and to see whether there were excess quantities of glutamate in that spinal fluid to really ask the question, is the phenomenon of excitotoxicity part of the pathophysiology of traumatic brain injury? 
And sure enough, in I think only 10 or 15 patients, I published a paper that said it sure was. There was a large amount, excess compared to normal people, of glutamate in the spinal fluid. So then in the 90s, I think this concept here and elsewhere was developed to the point that we asked the question, would NMDA antagonists be beneficial in traumatic brain injury? That hasn't necessarily panned out. That may be for a variety of clinical reasons. And I think the concept of excitotoxicity is still very much alive in the pathophysiology of traumatic brain injury. And we have gone on to do other studies that have taken it into deeper levels of, of complexity. <laughs> I was going to say, being an epigenetics person, I'm now thinking, what if there's circulating DNA in the spinal fluid? And mm -hmm. if you ran a methylome scan of that, what differential gene expression would you see? Exactly. Well, I mean, that's these are excellent questions. And something which um, I think makes uh, really having one foot in the lab and one foot in the clinic uh, really exciting for me. I think it's really important to sort of, uh, I, I don't describe myself as a basic science researcher, and I, uh, that term, I think, is, is maybe in evolution. I describe myself as a laboratory-supported clinical like researcher. That. And I think we all are, because we're, we're grappling with problems that people have, and we're saying, what tools can we bring to bear to answer this question? And there's some great tools in the lab. So could you tell us about some of the projects that you're currently grappling with? Sure. Big questions? Sure. I think, um, I think uh, one arising from that is that after what we call subarachnoid hemorrhage, a hemorrhage that arises from a aneurysm in the cerebral circulation, uh, people may recover. But unfortunately, seven days afterwards, the arteries in the brain can go into spasm. Um, but what we also notice is, is that, that people can exhibit stroke-like symptoms seven days after a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And because of the arterial spasm, it's been called vasospasm, and we have sort of assumed that there's a cause and effect there. But when you look closer, um, it's not necessarily the case. And so uh, we did some studies in the lab uh, where we looked at a model of subarachnoid hemorrhage in the mouse and discovered that they were small, what we call hits, which are very focal areas of ischemia. And we conjectured that there may be platelet plugs. And in a, in a in vitro setup, we activated platelets and discovered that they released a large amount of glutamate. When we looked at the neurons in these hits, they displayed characteristics of overexposure to glutamate. So we developed the hypothesis that maybe the neurologic deficits that we see in people after subarachnoid hemorrhage followed a pathway of disrupted endothelial glycocalyx, leading to activation of platelets and platelet plugging, and then the release of excess glutamate and injury to the surrounding neuron. So how do you model subarachnoid hemorrhage? We actually inject blood into the subarachnoid space in, in, the, in the mouse. So what we've done is we now have a Health Canada-approved clinical uh, trial to give a glutamate antagonist, NMDA antagonist, at the time of this delayed ischemic symptomatology in patients. And so in this ICU here, uh, when we find someone who meets all the inclusion criteria, we're giving a NMDA antagonist at the time of when they exhibit the neurologic findings. Uh, in addition to all the usual care, and so it's placebo-controlled, and it's an initial attempt to see whether uh, we can translate this work and uh, help patients get better 
or not as injured. So what are your primary outcomes? The primary outcomes will be cognitive deficits, and we will also be looking at high-resolution MRI scans to look at uh, the hits in the brain. You talk about being a laboratory-supported researcher. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, a good example. I think the other things that we're doing, uh, as you know, I have a big interest in traumatic uh, brain injury, and I developed interest in how blast waves can injure the brain. What's a blast wave? A blast wave is a really one of the components of what we see when a, a bomb goes off. Uh, your a blast wave is a is a pressure wave with a positive and a negative component. And it travels very fast. It travels faster than the concussive wind that follows afterwards, and certainly faster than the thermal injury that may occur with, with uh, flammable substances and shrapnel. So there's the four components, the, the blast, the concussive wind, the thermal component, and the shrapnel. So we've isolated the, the overpressure wave component of that, the blast wave, and modeled that in the lab and uh, demonstrated that even at levels of blast that don't affect anything else in the body and seemingly don't injure the laboratory animal, uh, there is evidence of um, anxiety and cognitive deficits in behavioral outcome studies. Uh, there's evidence of uh, broken axons when we look under the microscope and evidence of impaired electrophysiology when we use um, uh, EP studies. Um, and so we think that even subclinical or low-level blast injuries uh, is bad for the brain. And uh, now we've taken that to the to uh, another model using zebrafish in order to screen for new drugs which may uh, reduce the impact of, of blast. So why use zebrafish? Zebrafish, um, um, there's actually a, a large overlap homology in the genetic uh, sequencing with humans. We have a model where we can use a... Um, digital camera to monitor their behavior and their exploration, the distance they swim, the speed they swim, and so on. And the bottom line is we can do a high throughput. And so we can uh, look at a large number of injuries and therefore test a large number of drugs in a short space of time. So it's for efficiency. And then once we've done that, we can escalate a set of positive hits in terms of drugs to the next phase. Has the wave of big data hit your research? Um, the wave of big data is certainly around. It is, it is something of tremendous interest. And I think to put it simply, it's that we have spent a lot of time with small numbers and we understand what small numbers may tell us. And we're just beginning to discover what very big numbers can tell us. And uh, certainly we're interested in that in uh, human research and what happens in hospitals. But I'm also very interested in concussion in Ontario, and we've made a lot of progress in aligning and standardizing the questions that get asked to people with concussion, putting them in the same data set, uh, so that now maybe we can start to see patterns where they were less visible to us with smaller numbers. This is Hillary here. Welcome to another segment of Word on the Street, where we go around asking the public what they know about the topics discussed in the podcast. I'm at U of T's St. George campus right now, and we'll be running around from Robarts to the Goldring Athletic Center for High Performance Sport. And I'm going to ask people what they know about concussions, what to do if they have concussions, and if they have any stories to share about personal experiences with concussions. Let's go. Okay, so can you guys introduce yourselves? Oh, hi, I'm Jason. Okay, 
and what are you studying? Uh, studying medicine. What year? Second. Awesome. How about you? And I'm Jessica. I'm yeah. studying second year of medicine as well. And? Atif, also second year of medicine. All right, so let's see if you guys know this stuff. Um, Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> are you guys, so are you guys all athletes? Do you guys play? I dabble. You dabble? <laughs> what do you dabble in? Soccer, mostly. Soccer? And how about you? Um, mostly individual stuff. Okay. Uh, same, I'm mostly not, nothing. Okay, so um, here's your test. So do you guys, what do you guys know about concussions? It's a traumatic brain injury, yeah. sometimes subclinical, but otherwise it's that type of phenomenon. That type, so... Like, it, you know, that general, <laughs> that general type of injury to the brain, okay. anything that causes soft tissue injury. Okay, so what yeah. happens when someone gets a concussion? Yeah, I think it can. It usually varies a lot. So mm-hmm. someone can have just anything from like headaches to losing consciousness, mm-hmm. nausea, vomiting. Like it can manifest mm-hmm. in all of those things, which yeah. is I think why it makes it difficult to actually realize what's happening. Do you guys know anyone who's had a concussion? Oh uh, yeah. What, do you know what happened? Uh, I think it was football, just like a head-to-head thing, and then he just had a lot of headaches, dizziness. For how long? I don't know. I lost touch with him. So I'm not sure. <laughs> it was a nice lost to follow up. <laughs> lost to follow up. How about you? Have you? I, I had a concussion. I used to play hockey. That's why. Okay. Yeah. So from playing hockey um, and getting concussion, was it major? Or? No, it was it was subtle. But I mean, uh, I've had people who like like Otif mentioned they had, they would have headaches, kind of drowsiness or uh, kind of confusion that would last acutely for a day or two and then maybe persist for a week. All right. So I'm here with what's her name? Uh, Camille Montez. Okay, and so what are you studying at U of T and what year are you Kinesiology, I'm in first year. Awesome, so um, this might be right in your alley. Um, <laughs> uh, what, do you play any sports? Um, I played volleyball, I, play, I was a cheerleader and I danced. Oh, awesome. So is concussion a familiar term to you? Yes, I've actually had a concussion once. Yeah, do you want to explain what happened? Um, I fell from, like I was in a cheerleading stunt mm-hmm. and I fell, I was in... Um, it's called like a like I was in a fall, so I fell from that, and I fell like so like, like on a pyramid. Right? Yeah, type yeah. of thing. I fell more on my back, and then okay. like I just my head like whipped back. Okay. So yeah. And what was the experience after that? Um, I just remember like laying on the floor, and I looked up, and it was kind of like blurry, and I remember, like my head hurt, and then the next day like my neck hurt a lot, and. I remember like my coach just being like do not fall asleep or something mm-hmm. like that and I went to the emergency after and then they oh, just good. told me I had like a mild concussion or something like that and I got out of my exams because mm-hmm. of that and uh, yeah eventually it healed I think it was like a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks? Yeah. Okay that's great. Yeah. Mild. Yeah, well, yeah we're, we're happy you're <laughs> well now. <laughs> um, so do you have any recommendations for people um, who might not know if they have a concussion but like after they hit their head like um, what they should be doing? Um, I think that headaches, like uh, concurrent headaches, constant headaches, are like a really big sign, red flag type mm-hmm. of thing because um, people think that it's just like a normal thing to like um, look look over it because like I don't know like because stress from school or whatnot. They yeah. Think it's because of something else, but like sometimes it's just like better safe than sorry type of thing. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. 
So I'm here with Angie. Um, what year are you in? I'm in my fifth year. And what are you studying? I'm a major in English and a double minor in history and classical civilization. Awesome. <laughs> so um, what kind of um, sports have you done in the past or are you doing right now? Uh, I've played pretty much every sport in the past from mm -hmm. swimming, golf, rugby, basketball, volleyball, soccer, everything. <laughs> awesome. Um, so um, we're doing a segment, um, this segment we're talking about um, concussions. So we wanted to know like, do you know anything about concussions? I do a little bit. I have had a couple of concussions from sports. Oh, wow. Yeah. From different ones or the same one? Uh, same with rugby. Okay. Yeah. What happened? Uh, ta it's contact, right? It's yeah. pretty rough. So mm -hmm. a couple of times I was tackled, landed, hit my head on the way down, and yeah. it's actually road. Do yeah. you want to describe what happened afterwards? Like, how did you feel? What medical attention did you get? Um, so pulled me off field, had the trainer come over, mm -hmm. um, did some different reaction tests, see mm -hmm. what was going on, um, ended up having to go home, get woken up every 30 minutes, make sure everything was good, had to go to the doctor, get an x-ray, mm -hmm. and uh, very painful, really woozy feeling, mm -hmm. just big massive headache, no lights, nothing, just in the dark. For how many days? Uh, it was, the second one I had was pretty rough. I was home, I think, for almost like two days. Oh, wow. Just okay. on and off, yeah. Did you feel like even afterwards, um, after the bed rest, that you felt like cognitively you still needed some rest? Or? Yeah, I was pretty, yeah. like, worn out for a couple weeks with it. Mm -hmm. um, I was lucky. I've had friends that have, like, had to go to special, like, therapists for their concussions, mm -hmm. and they can't do, like, lights for, like, a month. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty rough. <laughs> well, we're glad you're okay. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for sharing. So what's your name? Alex. And what year study are you in? Uh, first year. Okay, what are you studying? Uh, commerce. Okay, um, so do you play any sports? Uh, basketball. Okay, and um, do you know anything about concussions? Uh, somewhat. What do you know about it? You get dizzy. You get dizzy? <laughs> yeah. How does that happen though? Uh, you hit your head really hard or uh -huh. something along those lines. Okay. Yeah. Do you know anyone who's had a concussion? Like, or have you had one? No. No? Okay. Do you know what to do, though, if you think you have a concussion? Um, sit up and ice it. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, that's all. That's it? Yeah. So see you a doctor? Go, you oh, okay, yeah, good. You want to go see the hospital? Okay. Yeah. Good, good, good. Okay, all right. Yeah. Thanks. From my run around campus today, most people know that concussion is some sort of trauma to the brain, but any additional knowledge of what a concussion is seems to depend on one's experiences with concussions. A lot of people think that concussion results from obvious impacts, but if you stay tuned, you'll find that's not always the case. Well, you often hear an athlete suffering a con concussive injury, there's a time period where they can't return to play. Yes. But what exactly is a concussion? How do you know, how can you tell someone has suffered a concussion? Do we have like an, an anatomical indicator? Uh, one of the aspects of a concussion is that we often cannot see anything on a CT scan. And in fact, even on a conventional MRI, we may not see anything. We may see something on functional MRI analysis. But again, the more and more I study it, the more I realize that it's a bit of a semantic puzzle. And by that, I mean, um, if you were just to describe things from a functional perspective and say, let's not get stuck on a single word concussion, let's divide people into what happens to them. 
So um, even though it's too many words, we could have a syndrome where you get hit on the head, you lose awareness, you go to emerge, you have a negative CT scan, you don't feel well for three days, and after three days, you start to feel better, and after a couple of weeks, you never look back. So there's a long title for one syndrome. But there's another syndrome closely related, which is after three days, you still don't feel good, and two weeks later, you still don't, and six months later, you're still struggling with cognitive issues and memory issues and so on. And so we could add many, many names to it on a, from a functional perspective and say, well, that's what you had. And then we can start to look at what the pathophysiology is. And we're starting to discover that it does obviously include organic changes. It's not just functional changes in neurons. It's, it's uh, some changes that um, include ongoing neuroinflammation and maybe breakdown of axons. I can tell you one thing, though, in just in getting back to the laboratory-supported research, you know, on an average weekend that I, that I come to work, I end up talking to families about a sudden severe traumatic injury where somebody was not only well five minutes before the accident, but actually quite active. Accidents happen to active people. You stay at home in bed, nothing happens to you. <laughs> it's true. And so it's not unusual for me to talk to the parents of a young athlete, the parents or the spouse of a construction worker, you know, the family of people who've been in a car accident, people who are moving about doing things. And, you know, I was talking about access to patients for families earlier and being patient-centered. Right now I'm telling people that I have a lab and I do laboratory-supported research, and that's what I'm doing on Monday morning at the end of my weekend. And you know, I think that means a lot to patient families to know that I've dedicated my life to traumatic brain injury. I'm obsessed by it from a patient care perspective and what it means to ensure that families get the best care and that I'm running around worrying about quality issues in my day job. But in the evenings, I'm reading science about how to change it so it's not the same in 10 years from now and not the same in 20 years from now. So where do you see the field going? Well, I think, obviously, prevention is the best uh, thing. And I, so I think that we're going to learn a lot more about being a lot more sensible about our head. And, so, and we've got to do that. And we've got to understand what activities are, are dangerous. What do you think about sports like MMA, boxing, <laughs> as a neurotrauma yeah, specialist? I, I must say that I'm... Um, offended by them. <laughs> and I, the reason I say that is that um, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I haven't watched them enough. Um, and some people tell me that some of these sports are safer than other things. And I, you know, I'm, I'm willing to listen and I, and I like athleticism. And I, I don't think that people should stay at home and do nothing. Having said that, if a component of any sport is around, that includes a component which is trauma to the head designed at making brain dysfunction, then that to me is bizarre. And I'm not saying that's the main focus of all of these sports, but if it is a component, then that to me is, is offensive. And it, it, it would be sort of like me throwing kidney poison at you in a sporting, in a sporting sort of way. <laughs> and and I, we, I mean, we laugh at that because it sounds so crazy. But why would you design a punch that would give rotational, you know, axial forces to the brain, which are clearly, you're not trying to do that to the shoulder, you're trying to do that to the head. 
and I, I think whether we are conscious, consciously saying it to ourselves or not, that's because we know that can induce some sort of neurologic dysfunction. Wouldn't it be an interesting study, like following a, a bout, just take some serum from these athletes and biomarker researchers is something well, that's Well, listen, really that's, not, uh, that's not so crazy. People are essentially doing that. And I've seen, I've seen grants on this topic in taking biomarkers before and after rugby games and so on and so on, for sure. And then, I mean, but even more than that, I mean, people are doing now uh, neuropsych testing and MRI before and after a season of football. And so on, so on. So that's 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 well out of the gates, I think. But you were asking me earlier just where the field is going, and yes, so I, yeah. st I started with prevention. I do think that um, we are starting to learn a lot more about uh, the concept of resilience and the and the physiology of resilience. And f the reason I mentioned that is because we're learning a lot more about neuroinflammation and what goes on in the brain after injury, and we're looking at it from maybe two broad categories. One is is how we reduce the, the injurious part of that inflammation, but how we can also maybe augment the resilient part of that uh, response. So everything from uh, precursor cells, you know, different types of stem cells, to trying to look at preconditioning and other things like that. Uh, on the upside and then on the downside, looking at the various pathways that um, exacerbate injury afterwards. And I think from a from a treatment perspective, I mean, obviously we have people with severe coma, and I think the area, um, the way that field is going, is to increase our understanding of the physiology of the brain, and by that I mean actually looking at oxygen tension in the brain, looking at the electrical patterns of the brain, and monitoring the brain a lot more carefully. And we we made reference to that when we were talking about neurocritical care and all the special techniques that we can bring to bear when we have a specialized uh, center of interest like we do here. And uh, of course, I, I think um, we have uh, had the experience over the last 20 years of a number of individual drug trials which have failed in, in brain injury. And I think the field has retreated a little bit to sort of say we need to understand the preclinical models better and not rush to the clinic uh, so fast. Maybe we need to start to look at combinations of, of drugs to, to, to pick out the bad components of inflammation and leave the good components, if you like. And then finally, you guys have mentioned uh, big data, and I think that the world is coordinating collection of data on everything from severe, moderate, mild, and concussion brain injuries to see whether we can learn something uh, from very large numbers. I don't think people realize how much goes into this field because, you know, initially walking into this, uh, into this interview, I think, oh, this is just a matter of, you know, as soon as you get the patient in, time is precious, make sure that they're protected, and then you got to sort of get them stable as soon as possible. But then right. you talk about you're doing molecular studies, you're looking sure. at receptors, you're looking at animal models, you're looking at, uh, you're doing vascular studies, maybe you're looking at cognition and behavior. So... This must lend itself to quite a bit of collaboration. Oh, yes. It's, it's a very huge field. It's very inspiring. I mean, there's uh, lots of conferences, obviously, dedicated to just this. And uh, Toronto is host to the next International Neurotrauma Symposium in August 2018. And um, 
you will see in Toronto a collection of scientists from all around the world and with many, many disciplines in this area. All budding neurotrauma specialists. That's you right. know That's where right. to be. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, Toronto, August 2018. Yeah. Hi, everybody. This is Hillary Chan reporting. Um, right now, we're at the Benson Building, which is um, in the Athletic Center. And today, we're going to be doing the segment, Life Supply, where you can get what you need to apply to your everyday life. So today, we're here with Dr. Michael Hutchison. Uh, he is the director of the concussion program and assistant professor at the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education. So we're going to ask a few questions um, so that uh, our audience can better apply sports concussion and the knowledge of it to their everyday life. Um, so let's start off with an easy question. What's the most common way athletes get concussions? Uh, sure. Um, first off, thank you and good morning uh, for coming by. And I, I th uh, It's great to uh, take this time and speak about an important issue uh, such as sport concussion. So, uh, you know, what is the most common way athletes get uh, injured with respect to concussion? Well, it's often uh, a direct uh, contact to the head. I will say, though, in, in the sporting context, it's a little bit of a still a misconception that you uh, that you need to have to be hit directly to the head, and that's mm -hmm. not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are situations that we, what we call indirect blows to the head. So if someone in, let's say, hockey was uh, struck in the chest, you can actually decelerate or come to a stop, and, and that can obviously shake your brain uh, to a velocity or a force that actually produces a concussion. But more often than not, in most contexts, it's, it's, a, it's a direct blow to the head uh, for, for athletes. And for our audience who do play sports then, I want to ask, what are some signs of concussion that are often ignored or overlooked, but could be extremely dangerous? What we try to do is, is cluster the symptoms into different categories. And so when you think of one category being somatic or, or physical, that's, you know, issues with respect to having a headache or kind of feeling nauseous or maybe being dizzy. The other, other category would be what we call cognitive, and that would be elements of difficulty concentrating, uh, difficulty remembering, difficulty following conversations, those things, or even feeling slow. The other element is actually um, you know, s s sensory elements. And so what we talk about in that is the sensitivity to light, sensitivity to sound, so not being able to use screens or not be able to be in environments that are quite noisy. Um, the other aspect that often is overlooked, to be quite honest, is the emotional section. Okay. And so that is when, you know, what we classify sadness, depression, uh, potentially irritability, anxiety, those elements. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is, is sleep disturbance. And sleep disturbance is an interesting one because it doesn't go one way. Uh, sleep disturbance is, is, is the fact that some people have extreme difficulty sleeping or trouble falling asleep. Mm -hmm. And the other end of the spectrum, some people, all they want to do is sleep. Mm -hmm. So that's why we call it sleep disturbance, because it doesn't go in one direction. You know, if you think of the emotional mm -hmm. aspect, you don't, you don't get happier after a concussion. It goes in one direction. Mm -hmm. um, but sleep uh, is the one aspect that goes in both directions. Um, so I would say, though, is that uh, the ones that most often get overlooked is actually the, the emotional component. Mm -hmm. So when would you expect that to happen, like immediately after, or does it progress mm -hmm. um, along? So the, that's, an, that's actually a very good question, and sometimes uh, 
complicates the process because sometimes stu students or athletes kind of dismiss the fact that if the next day they wake up, mm -hmm. they have symptoms, they don't connect it with the, the previous day. And so we classify where we consider a concussion uh, an evolving injury. And what we mean by that is that things can evolve over the first 24 hours. And so despite you maybe, you know, falling, playing rugby or something like that, and there's a big collision, and you're kind of stunned and shocked, and you're like, whoa, am I okay? And you are okay maybe at that time, and you continue to play, and everything seems to be fine. And then the next day you wake up and you're like, holy, I have a pounding headache or, mm -hmm. you know, I'm really tired or I'm having trouble like being on my phone or my screen. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's not that connection that, oh, it could have been because of that contact the previous day. Mm -hmm. and, and so you have to be cognizant of the fact that symptoms can evolve over the first, you know, 10, 12, 24, even 48 hours. And so we need to be aware of that window of evolving symptoms. Okay, and also I read on your concussion program website that concussion symptoms, uh, they may mimic other medical conditions. Yeah. Could you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the things that I just talked about, mm -hmm. those different elements, yeah. whether somatic, cognitive, sleep, yeah. or sensory elements, they truly are uh, nonspecific. Yeah. And, and what I mean by that, uh, for students or athletes that, you know, play, may play a couple times in a weekend, they're mm -hmm. going to be really tired. Yeah. They're going to feel slow. They're going mm -hmm. to maybe not be able to uh, be able to read very long. And the same thing goes for uh, the, you know sleep elements. Um, and so those things can also be kind of present when someone may have issues with respect to stress. Yes. Uh, you know, academic stress, mm -hmm. uh, sporting stress, family stress, uh, either kind of relationship stress. And so stress or other health conditions, even potentially anxiety or depression, can kind of manifest in a very similar way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, given the non-specific elements to the clusters that I spoke about, you know, it's not that there's this one particular sign that's, oh, uh, that's concussion for sure. Um, and last question, um, for people who do play sports or don't play sports, I think in our lifetime we may bang our heads maybe once or twice. Um, so is there a guideline that you can recommend that we can follow if, let's say, we had a minor or a major thing on our blow to our heads, um, mm -hmm. but we want to check to see if we really need the medical attention? Uh, well, I, I think given that we are dealing with a potential head injury, mm -hmm. if there is a suspicion, mm -hmm. uh, then this is something that should be cared for by a physician, a medical doctor. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's one of these injuries that if it, there is suspicion, then the best approach is to seek medical advice because uh, you don't want it to potentially become worse or you don't potentially want to push through that because we know people that push through these things don't end up doing well mm -hmm. because what we truly need to do in, in this injury or the best kind of way we manage right now is what we call is, is, is kind of managing on the amount of stress uh, that someone should be engaged in. And stress, what I mean by that factor is... It could be physical stress, like walking around or activity. It could be cognitive elements, so how much someone should be doing in terms of school workload and social stress, uh, and that means like sensory or acoustic elements. And so when people, the best management right now is to guide people in a stepwise progression in that. And, and so if you don't seek medical advice, you potentially are not controlling it the right way, mm -hmm. and that can maybe potentially makes things worse. Um, in the long run. So if there's any suspicion, mm -hmm. uh, I think it, 
the guidance is to, to seek medical evaluation for that proper reintegration. Um, but essentially what we're trying to do is, is provide guidance and, res and restrictions um, for a natural progression in the recovery process. All right, so this is all the time we have today. Uh, thank you so much for um, answering all our questions. Oh, great. Thanks. Being a basic science researcher, I can say that techniques, right, improvement of technologies, making technologies more accessible, cheaper, yes. that's really helped us ask better questions. Yes. But is that true also of clinical research, particularly in your field? Um, I think that's true. I think it's true. Knowing both areas, I think that the rate of change in the basic science world has been huge. Um, and you would say that, too, about the clinical science world. But it's, there's a lot more process involved in changing the clinical science world. And I think the areas that have, have changed most dramatically in the clinical science world has been really the understanding of the importance of the right question in clinical epidemiology, as we call it, which is really biostatistics and, and approaches to study design and understanding how to interpret evidence. That's, that is a huge area. I think in neuroscience, imaging has really been the area where there's been huge rates of change and has really, really helped us advance the field dramatically. And if you go back to the late 70s to think that you know, neurosurgeons and neurologists did not have uh, CTs routinely available is, is incredible. And when you think of the resolution and the functional imaging that's available to us now, not just the anatomic, but the functional imaging that's available, that has been an amazing story over the last number of years. And I think, I think that now changes the field uh, dramatically. I think, uh, I think obviously, uh, big pharma and pharmaceutical development in the last 20 years and now targeted sort of um, understanding of, uh, say, um, individual pharmacogenetics and, and, um, and so on has, has really changed things. And I think what, what is coming now is actually um, using uh, genetic tools to understand differences between uh, people and really discovering an amazing amount of information, both epigenetics, genetics, around the different subclasses of, of, of the phenotypes that we see. And that's really been revolutionary. And it will continue to be. I think that's really, we haven't even seen the benefit of that yet. It sounds like every scientist that we've spoken to will say that all disciplines, regardless of how distantly related they are to each other, mm -hmm. are slowly moving together. And that the future yes. is team-based. It is team science. Right. I think that is true. And I think that the one thing that makes me very optimistic about new generation, and I consider myself self very young at heart and so on, but when I look at you too, and I think of the skills that you bring make me very optimistic. And I'll tell you what they are, and that is that um, from my vantage point, I find that people are have a lot more dimensions, of, uh, available information, not just information, but really understanding on, on multiple dimensions. And I think that's a skills uh, or a available intelligence that you guys should continue to foster because uh, the one constant will be change. <laughs> so your ability to really explore different worlds and, and be able to be open to that is amazing. It makes me very optimistic about the future and is really important. And this is what this is all about too because although we have our specialties in yeah. our research projects, right. We're just so curious to learn more about other disciplines because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's only going to make our understanding of our 
increase our insights. Right. And, and I think most students sort of, uh, most graduate students are at risk of locking themselves up in the lab. Right. As uh, one of our guests told us. Right. Right. And, and not really being aware of what else is going on outside of right. their work. Right. And I think that uh, my, my um, best advice or what I like to see is people learning what it means to become really expert at a field and knowing what it means to dig deep and especially know what it means to understand the word quality as it relates to your research because there are nuances in every area. And at the same time, in your spare time, <laughs> um, to keep yourself open like this to all the other dimensions and then to say, well, aha, I bet you know that guy over there must be doing what I'm doing over here, which is digging deep and going down. And then learning how to talk to each other and bring it up to a level so you can understand each other rapidly. I would imagine that the listener at this point of the conversation is thinking, this person sounds really busy. And being a physician scientist, right. you sort of wear many hats, right. right? So is there a day in the life or? You know, I think that I am exceptionally busy. But that's, you know, that just amounts to saying that I uh, am extremely happy and don't often do nothing. That's not to say that I don't have carefree times where I just stare at the clouds and, uh, and uh, I do enjoy that. My brain needs time to sort of do nothing, for sure. Um, I'm very fortunate to be involved in those areas. Some people say, well, maybe I'm over the top. But I think that there is a role for somebody doing, for people that do what I do, which is to sort of understand what it, what it means to be involved in those areas and really focus on how they connect. And that's what, I, that's what I hope to do. But the day in the life of, uh, for me involves um, a lot of meeting with people that are, I'm working with and communicating, communicating, communicating. And uh, it also involves a lot of reading. And I consider myself still, uh, you know, much of my learning ahead of me still. I, I still consider myself, a, you know, a permanent graduate student. A I student will never, of life. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it does involve that, and that includes in the evenings I'm reading because, um, but that's a joy, and I'm reading in and out of my field, mostly out, you know, uh, because there's so much more to to bring in, and so, so uh, no, I mean the the only limit is the uh, number of hours in a day, and I and I don't mean that in a sort of uh, obsessive way. I just mean that uh, it's like drinking cream from a fire hose, being uh, being in this. Uh, line of work is, is fantastic. And as you were alluding to earlier, this is kind of a lifestyle. Academia is for a sure. lifestyle. For sure. Right. I so. mean, it's who you are. I think that's, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think that uh, sometimes um, people and young people worry about being overly identified or uh, committing or, but, you know, somebody once said to me, you know, squander your life for a good cause. And uh, sort of, <laughs> uh, but I, I do think there's a, there's, you know, uh, people are are active in different fields, say in in the arts or in, the, in one in business or politics or something. It's important to have a context uh, in your life and then jump in with both feet. And within any, any context, there's ups and downs. There's things you enjoy. There's people, <laughs> you know, are contributing and people are detracting. Um, no different. But uh, the important thing is is to sort of say I'm okay and I love it and uh, and jump in with both feet. Any final considerations? 
No, I mean, I'm, I'm really pleased to meet you both. Uh, as I say, I've never been so optimistic about the future of science and medicine, um, especially. And I think the, the public uh, are also watching all, all of us and um, they're right with us. And so it's a, it's a good thing to be doing. As long as we can engage a couple students, maybe undergraduates who want to go into academia but don't quite know how to sort of get their feet wet, yeah. or uh, graduate students who are maybe working on one problem but maybe they want to be working on a different problem, right. or yes. as you say, engaging the public and realizing, yes. oh, this is how science happens. Right. right? Yes. It's not just lab coats and, and colored These liquid. These are the conversations that are happening behind in the exactly. lab meeting. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. City yeah. sounds and all sirens exactly. and everything. This is an office. Exactly. An office a Dyson like. fan right. and everything. That's right. Um, I think that brings us to the end. Thanks for joining us. Okay, my pleasure. Raw data is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawdataims.com, and also be sure to subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. And it, it, it would be sort of like me throwing kidney poison at you.